Um, hello, I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honour to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and rod and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodiest garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The the dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Merry almost Christmas, everybody. My name's Greg. I'm one of the ministers here at OEC, and it's my great pleasure and privilege to be opening God's Word with you. There's an outline of the talk on your handout, uh, so if you want to follow along, that's a great place to do that. You can take notes there too. Uh, Keep your Bibles open at Isaiah chapter 9. All other passages will come up on the screen for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonder and joy that we celebrate this Christmas. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and lived in this broken world, this dark world, and shined a great light. And we pray that we would welcome your word this morning with humble hearts. We pray that you would change us by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We had a fantastic year in our growth group, our small group this year. New people in the group bringing fresh thoughts, a real openness as people shared their struggles, their concerns, their temptations, and then challenging each other to honour God through each of those. And it was all capped off by a cracking final night uh, of growth group. We shared some more than half-decent takeaway Chinese. Uh, then Then we prayed, thanking God for all that we'd seen him do amongst us that year. And then we played a game called Boulder Dash. Don't know if you've played that before. Boulder Dash is a game where you make up meanings to words you don't know. So I'm going to give you a few. Words like guid guid. Does anyone know what a guid guid is? No one. There you go, that's, that's what Boulder Dash is like. Um, it actually is a name for a rock wren whose cry resembles the yelping of a puppy. That's actually what it says on the card. That's what, the, that's what a guid guid is. Okay, here's one more. Uh, Meliagreen. Does anyone know what Meliagreen means? No, I didn't think you would. Okay. Um, it means pertaining to Turkey. That's what it says on the card. 
So let's put it in a sentence. For lunch tomorrow, we're going to have a roasted bird from the Melia Green family of proteins. So why don't you try that tomorrow at lunch if you're serving turkey? Um, here's a word I hadn't heard until this week. Nyctophilia. Who wants to take a stab at what that might mean? It's not the fear of board games, no. It's some sort of obsession. Take a stab in the dark, that might help you. That's a, that's a pardon? It's a love of the dark, thank you. That's right, philia means love. It means literally lover of darkness. Someone who loves being in the darkness, who prefers the night to the day. The comfort, the quietness, the solitude of night compared to the busyness and the hurriedness and the brightness of the daylight. Uh, and being a nyctophiliac isn't necessarily a bad thing. Darkness can heighten other senses, like making you aware of sounds. Um, but there's a love of darkness that's unhealthy, that in reality we all need to be saved from. A love of the darkness that longs to hide things from one another and hide things from God himself. And in the passage that we just read this morning, in verse 2, there's a promise of a new dawn of a great light that pierces into the darkness. And we live on the other side of that great dawn when the light has come, the light of Christ has come, the wonderful news of the coming of Jesus that we all celebrate tomorrow morning, this Christmas. But as we celebrate the coming of this great light, this new dawn, this wonderful and powerful work of the living God, we need to ask, do we welcome the light? Or do we prefer the darkness? The Old Testament can sometimes be hard to understand, hard work to what it means in its own context. And, and one of the keys to understanding uh, how to read the Old Testament is one of these key principles is that the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the hopes, the patterns, the promises of the Old Testament. In, in the final chapter of Luke, Jesus says these words. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying the whole of the Old Testament points to me. And here at OEC, every time we open the Old Testament, we keep asking, how is it fulfilled in Jesus? That's what we do, because that's, that's how Jesus tells us to read it. But this very important principle in reading the Old Testament sometimes gets us into trouble in passages like Isaiah chapter 9 that so obviously point to Jesus. And so that verse near the end, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on the throne of his father David. This so clearly points us to Jesus, doesn't it? But we're so quick to make that jump that I think quite often we fail to read the passage in its own context. And what's the biggest key to understanding any passage? Old Testament, New Testament, context, context, context. So before we jump to Jesus from chapter 9, and we will get there, let's read this passage as the ninth chapter of Isaiah. Let's read, as someone hearing these words, the other side of the fulfilment of Jesus to us as an old covenant Israelite. And as we'll see, as we get to know what this would have meant for them then, it helps us to think through the wonder of what this means, that this promise has been fulfilled. That's, what, that's the journey we're going through here this morning. 
So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. In this chapter, a key chapter in Isaiah, God is asking for someone to speak to his people on his behalf, who will be his prophet for them and bring his word to them. And Isaiah picks up his hand and says, pick me, pick me. And so God sends him with these words. Go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. So Isaiah is going to bring this great word to his people, God's word, but this word of God will be met with unbelief, with hard hearts, with unseeing eyes. And as the people are confirmed in their rejection of God, their rejection of his words, devastating judgment will fall on his people. So then chapter 7 and chapter 8, we're taken to a point in Israel's history where God's people, the nation of Judah, is under threat. Judah is the southern kingdom ruled by the descendants of David. But up in the north, the kingdom of Israel, ten northern tribes, they've joined forces with the king of Aram, a foreign nation, to attack, to attack Judah, their brothers, to attack Jerusalem, to destroy this small nation of God's people. And Ahaz, king of Judah, God's chosen king in the line of David, is shaking in his boots. And Isaiah speaks to this situation where brother has raised arms against brother and God says through Isaiah that he will spare Judah this, this attack. He's going to utterly destroy Israel and Aram through the power of the Assyrians. It sounds like good news, doesn't it? And initially it is, but not for long. Because in chapter 7, Isaiah also warns that the Assyrians will not just lay waste to Israel and Aram. No, they will invade Judah as well and bring Judah to their knees because they will fail to listen to the words of God. Isaiah 7 verse 7, the Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, that is the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will overflow its channels and spill over its banks. It will pour into Judah, flood over it and sweep through, reaching up to the neck and its flooded banks will fill your entire land, Emmanuel. Israel will warn the people, but just like God said, they will not listen and judgment will fall. And then will they hear the word of God? Will they listen then? No, they won't. In chapter 8, even this experience of judgment that they have been warned would come, what do the people do? They don't want to hear the words of God. They want to hear lies. Isaiah 8 verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? And so the chapter ends in utter darkness, the darkness of judgment, but also the darkness of an unwillingness to listen to the life-giving words of God. Chapter, uh, chapter 8 verse 21. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they, are, when they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward, will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. God calls on them to repent, and they prefer lies 
the lies of their mediums instead of the truth of God's word. And then God judges them as he promised and they curse him to his face. They're like nocturnal creatures. They prefer the dark, unwilling to face the truth of their sin and then surround themselves with words that they want to believe, they want to hear, preferring the darkness of their sin and rebellion to the light and life-giving words of the living God. And it's only in understanding this darkness at the end of chapter 8 that we can understand the light of chapter 9 and the fulfilment of that promise in Jesus. The darkness that we see described in these chapters, in chapter 8, is the darkness of our world. A darkness of a world full of war and hatred, a world lost in conflict and curse, where the goodness that we experience in this world is so easily marred and overshadowed by the brokenness and hurt we see every day in our news feeds and in our own experiences. But the darkness of our world isn't just out there somewhere. It's in here. The darkness that the people of Isaiah's day experienced was a darkness that their own hearts and lives were enmeshed in. They hated the oppression, but they failed to see that the darkness of their experience of the world is a darkness that they were complicit in, in the way that they treated others, in the way that they treated their God. And later we'll reflect on the truth that their experience of this darkness is ours as well. But through the deepest darkness of chapter 8 comes the shining light of chapter 9. 9 verse 1 begins with the word, nevertheless. So in sharp contrast to the darkness and distress of chapter 8. Chapter 9 verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honour to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the Lantians. So the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali are right up in the north, the far northern tribes of the, of the northern Israel, tribes who were the first to bear the brunt of the Assyrian invasion, the judgment of God. But where in judgment there was humbling, in the future there will be honour. God will humble them in judgment, but then God will honour them in restoration and hope, an honour that even the nations get caught up in and brought into an honour and a hope, verse 2, that's described as the dawning of a new day. Have a look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And so after the darkness and gloom of judgment, out of the ashes of the fury of God, at their rebellion and sin, God brings a new beginning, a new dawn, a reversal of their experience where before the borders of the nation kept on closing in as they were overrun by foreign nations and the land was taken over and they were thrown out of the land as God sent them away. What God promises here is a land where the borders expand out, where the people receive the land again, a land of blessing, a land of hope, a land of life. Where before the crops were taken away from them, the fields were overrun with briars and weeds, here God promises at times where the vats will overflow and they will see the abundant provision of God for them and they will rejoice. And for a people that were again and again attacked, destroyed, saw the horrors of warfare, 
which in itself was judgment from their God. Instead, verse 4, the oppressive yoke is shattered. The rod of their oppressor is snapped in two. And the battle boots and the coats stained with the blood of warfare are burned because wars are ended. Fighting is over. Lasting peace has come, as God promised. Verse 4 is a reminder of their oppression in the past, like when they were oppressed by the Egyptians or oppressed by other nations like the Midianites in Judges, oppression they will experience in the invasion from the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. It's going to be like going to those, back to those bad old days of slavery and death. Well, what God promises here is once again a great exodus, once again a great salvation by the powerful hand of the living God. And this salvation, this great shining light, is a new dawn. The hope and promise of God, determined to bless his people. The world God is promising in these verses is the world that we all long for, isn't it? Ever since we were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, we've longed to go back. Longed to live in a world where war is replaced by peace, where Hatred is replaced by love, where disaster and desperation is replaced by abundance and prosperity. And that's what this passage promises, a world put right, a world of blessing instead of curse. But there's another great change in this passage, a great light promise here that's easy to miss, and that's the change in God's people. Before they refused to hear the words of God. They surrounded themselves with lies and liars who would tell them words that encouraged them to continue in their rebellion against God. And then when the promised judgment fell, they cursed God to his face. But in these verses, in chapter 9, the people who love the darkness, they see the light, and instead of preferring the darkness, they welcome the light and are drawn to it, not away from it. God has increased the joy of his people, that's his work, verse 3, and they respond with thankful rejoicing instead of ungrateful demanding. An acknowledgement that what they have is from God rather than something they feel they deserve. The salvation promised in these verses is different to the salvation that God won for them in the Exodus and different to the salvation God won for them when God drove the Midianites out of the land back in Judges. Because when God saved his people from the Egyptians, they so quickly turned to idolatry. They complained to their God who saved them. They demanded more and demanded answers and accused God of being a tyrant. And when God saved his people from the Midianites, they so quickly turned again to idols and to arrogance, rejecting God's word. And that's the core problem in both of these times, a refusal to listen to God's word and trust the God who speaks. The biggest change between chapter 8 and chapter 9 is not the blessings that the people receive, but actually the people themselves. That world that we long for, that world of blessing instead of curse, of peace instead of war, of love instead of hate, is tied to a world where we, the people in it, are changed in our hearts. Because the darkness of our world is not just out there, it's in here. But how will God bring such a great salvation? Well, it's the promised king that brings in this new day. 
And here are those famous words that speak of the coming of the king, fulfilled in Jesus, words that echo through the opening chapters of Luke. Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this verse is a little bit confusing, I think. You could read this verse in a way that would suggest that what God is promising is that this child that will be born will be the Eternal Father. God the Father will become a baby, but as we know, that's not what happens. And in fact, the following verse shows that that's not what's being promised, because the child that will be born is God's promised king in the line of David, his son. He's not the heavenly father, but with the coming of this king, with the birth of this child, will come a radical change in the way that God relates with his people. Wonderful counselor. Let's take the terms one at a time. Wonderful counselor, or more more literally, supernatural counselor. He will be the one who brings supernatural wisdom. Before the people wanted lies and deceptions and worldly wisdom that permitted them to live their lives of rebellion against God, but this one brings wisdom from heaven. That changes people's hearts. Mighty God. With the coming of this child will come victory for his people. Before God was against them, judging them, giving them over to the hands of their enemies. But the coming of this son marks a time when their enemies will no longer oppress them and their blessing will be secured. Eternal Father, well, before God was their enemy, their judge, they treated him with contempt and indifference. But the coming of this child marks a change in relationship. He's truly their father forever. And they are family to him. And his love for them will never be broken again. Prince of Peace. It's a title that really combines mighty God and eternal father. True peace with God, with each other. A peace that can only come from a world put right from hearts that have been changed by the living God. And it's the very coming of this king, his birth as a child that marks the start of this kingdom, the moment where things change, where the dawn light, uh, light shines. And the final sentence of this promise in verse uh, 7 shows his absolute, God's absolute determination to fulfil this word. Now, God always fulfils his word. His word is always true. But there's some things that God promises that he's truly bent on, deeply and profoundly committed to zealously determined to bring to fruition. And this promise of an eternal king, this promise of a king for the nations, for his people, is one that he is zealous to fulfil. I hope you've seen how understanding the context of this passage in its, in its own context, as chapter 9 of Isaiah, helps us to understand the magnitude of what's been promised and exactly what sort of darkness this promised king comes to dispel and shine a light in. So when we come to Luke chapter 1, we can see what Zechariah means when he sings these words, when he erupts in praise like this. I'll come up on your screen, Luke 1 verse 78. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us, to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. As, as a priest in the temple, Zechariah knew his Old Testament. And you can hear the echoes of Isaiah 9 in these last two verses of his song of praise. Zechariah sees it with the birth of, birth of his son, John, the darkness is nearly over. 
the dawn is about to come because God's chosen king is about to be born. God's people have been waiting for this for over 700 years since, since Isaiah spoke those words back in Isaiah 9. I'm oh, sorry, yep. Uh, Zechariah knows that 700 years of waiting is over. The first lights of dawn have begun to dispel the darkness of a world lost in sin and warfare and oppression. Zechariah waited nine months in silence, unable to speak, cursed by God for his unbelief. But the reality is it's not just Zechariah that's been waiting for this moment. The whole of creation has waited for this moment. And the birth of his son John, the day is about to dawn when God's great and powerful promises will be fulfilled. But as we saw in Isaiah, the darkness is not just a darkness out there in the world, but a darkness that's lodged in the human heart. That God was promising to shine a light into with the coming of his son. Where before people responded in arrogance and foolish pride, indifference and rebellion and sin, Isaiah 9 promised a change in the human heart where people would welcome his blessings with joy instead of indifference. But the reality is, when this king was born, when this promise was fulfilled, when Jesus came and the light dawned, the people still preferred darkness. There were some that listened, yes, but even they didn't understand. The people listened to Jesus, they loved his miracles, they loved his healings, but they rejected his words and he died at the hands of his people and the hands of the nations who failed to welcome this king and welcome the dawn. But the darkness of his death brought a great light. And his death defeated the very sin that stopped the ears of the people. His resurrection shined a light on those living in the darkness and the shadow of death. And since that day, the word of God has rung out across the world and the word of forgiveness and life and hope and resurrection and millions and millions of people have received that word and found forgiveness and hope and joy in the face of death. The light has dawned and they continue to celebrate the sunrise. The coming of Jesus is the dawning of a new day. The sun is risen. The light is shining in the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that shines a light in our world and the darkness of sin is exposed and the evil of humanity is laid bare and a new hope, a new promise, a new life has been revealed in the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we live in a world that still loves darkness, don't we? The dawn might have come, the light promised in Isaiah 9 shines brightly, but like bats in the daylight, we prefer the darkness. We still do. The world suffers from nyctophilia, a love of darkness. So many don't want to hear the news of Jesus, the light of the world, because it forces them to face the reality of the darkness in their own hearts. And they don't want to hear it. The truth is, if all of us look closely enough, we will see the same darkness in our own hearts, won't we? We still do. We see this darkness in our love of lies, our unwillingness to deal with the sin that we harbour in our hearts, that hatred, that indifference, that overreaction, the unwillingness to accept God's good word to us. There's an important question that we all need to ask ourselves. Do we love the darkness too much to listen to the light 
of the person of Jesus as he shines a light in the darkness. Do we want God to save us? Are we satisfied with this broken, cursed life and would prefer to hear the words of our culture that says, we've got this, it's all good. But it's not all good, is it? And if this morning the brokenness and the darkness of our world oppresses you, if you look inside and recognise that darkness is also in your own heart, let me urge you to take a fresh look at the coming of Jesus, promises fulfilled in him. Let this summer be a time when you listen to the words of Jesus afresh, see the light that his word shines and the forgiveness that he offers in the face of death, the shadow of death, find truth and life and hope in the person and work of Christ. Take a Gospel of Luke this morning. In fact, take a whole Bible if you want to. We'd love you to take it. Take it as our Christmas gift to you. Take it home, read of the promises fulfilled, ask your questions, find good answers, meet Jesus who brings the dawning of a new day. Now, if you've seen the light and welcome this dawn, and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, accept the truth of God's word and the forgiveness that it offers, then we need to continue to let that light shine in the darkness, don't we? We need to let the truth of God, his word, penetrate deep into the dark recesses of our life where we let sin lurk and parts of our life that we don't want God to change. That's how we continue to celebrate the dawning of a new day. Let's celebrate the sunrise this Christmas, especially on a dark day like this. Celebrate it by listening to the truth of God's word, the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. Love the light that has come in the person of Jesus. Love the light enough to let it continue to change what you love. Love the light enough to share that light with others, speaking this message of hope to a world that so desperately needs to hear it and to see it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this great and good word of yours. And we pray that it wouldn't just be something that we listened to and think that was interesting, but instead that we would let that light shine in our life. We pray that you would expose those dark recesses of our hearts and that your great and good and powerful word would change us to make us more like you. Change our hearts. Help us to listen well. And help us to love you and love the dawn that you have brought. And help us to share that great news with others too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.